You are listening to the weekly sermon from Elevation Community Church in Blanchester, Ohio. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit myelevationcc.org. I love this brother so much. And uh, yeah, we missed you, Phil. I miss you. And um, come on up. We love you. Thank you. Tech, could you do me a favor? Can we turn the fluorescence on? I want to see these people. Get ready. Squint your eyes. Here they come. Wow. Hi. Good to see you guys. Wow. Missed you dearly. I uh, intentionally planned... Nothing to say today. Just wanted to take in this moment. Thank you to every single one of you who have prayed, especially those who have been through cancer, sickness, trials, tribulations, COVID, you name it, sick in bed, paralyzed in bed, going from doctor to doctor to practitioner to practitioner, test to test to test, with them just referring you to another one. And uh, you know what it's like. And I tell you, many of you have been through tribulation that this season of mine doesn't even compare to. Um, We're trying to discover what the root cause is. My whole family has been sick, and uh, we think it's mold. And so we're trying to figure that out. My Lyme's disease has gone from five strands to one strand. My brain fog and mental fatigue seems to get worse. (laughs) But I know that the storm comes before the rainbow, before the calm. It's been difficult. I didn't realize my life was hitting a dead-end wall of burnout. And uh, for that, I'm, I'm deeply sorry to my family, to the elders of this church, and to every single one of you. It is not God's design for a leader of the church, let alone a Christian, to ever reach burnout. But we know in this life, we will have many heartaches and tribulations. And when we don't truly take them to the throne, and when we truly don't rest and abide like they just said today in the Lord, we have self-inflicted pain (laughs) and trials and heartache. And so I'm here to encourage you today that fear is not your future. God is. Sickness is not your story, Hallie, Sean. Sickness is not your story, he is. Heartache, Brittany, 
depression is not your home. He is. And death, though we will all face it, is not our end. Jesus Christ is. And I shared in the video on May 16th that in the words of the theologian Arnold Schwarzenegger, I am back. But I'm back in a different way. I'm still healing and recovering. I got a ways to go. Doctors say it could be a year. Uh, could be more, but I'm in the hands of God. He is my portion. He is my healer. He is my sustainer. And one thing you're going to get from me when I come back here is I'm going to challenge you hard. I'm going to challenge you hard to where we may even decrease in size because people can't take the challenge. But your devotion to Jesus Christ, your 100% devotion to Jesus Christ is the only thing that matters. We live in an American Christian culture that says you can have your Jesus in a dose on Sunday mornings and then go back to all your worldly living the rest of the week just to come back and be fed by the pastor and be led by a team of worshipers. You don't see that in the Bible. And the Lord has spoken to me. There's been, uh, I'll be honest, the first six weeks, nothing but being in a sweat bag, a sauna, infrared sweat bag. It's the only way I can detox. My body doesn't detox. Well, that's what the doctors say, but I'm trusting that Jesus is rewiring my body to detox as he designed it to be. But I do believe that the wilderness, no one, who wants to go through a wilderness? <laughs> Nobody. Jesus was baptized and the heavens opened and, and God confirmed his son. It was the most incredible climactic moment for Jesus in all of his 30 years. This is where everybody who witnessed it knew that this was God's son. And where does Jesus go? To the wilderness. To be tempted by Satan. You think Jesus wanted to go to the wilderness? No. But he obeyed the Father. And guess how he came out? In the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, I'm in the wilderness. But I'm planning to come out in the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you better watch out. If you're in the wilderness right now, what you do in the wilderness affects how you come out. Are you abiding and clinging to the Lord or are you clinging to the lies of the enemy, the fear of never getting better? There's been a spirit of negativity upon this church for about 10 months now, and it's time for it to go bye-bye. Bye-bye. Negativity has no place here. If you have negativity in the wilderness, you're going to come out in the power of negativity. 
If you have bitterness in the wilderness, you're going to come out with a demonic power of the wilderness with negativity, jealousy, and bitterness. And James 5 says, or James 3 says it's demonic. So the wilderness is essential to the daughter of Christ and the son of Christ's life. It's essential. You don't want to go there, but it's essential. And what you do in the wilderness, friends, determines how you come out. You may be entering a wilderness right now. These words are for you. You may be exiting the wilderness right now. These words are for you. And I'd like to end with two scriptures. But before I do, I do want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to the worship team and the tech team who never miss a Sunday, who are faithful week in, week out, who lead you guys as they enter into the throne room every Sunday. I want to thank them. I want to thank the elders. I think this was a real big eye-opener for all of us as a church. You don't even see the role lead pastor in the Bible. (laughs) You don't. And I think in a especially in our culture, the pastor becomes the Moses. He becomes the one that everyone goes to and everyone depends on and everyone relies on. And sometimes God needs to visit a church and take away the pastor for a while. That you realize Pastor Phil is not the church. He's not even the savior of the church. Jesus is. He's the shepherd of this church. I won't be here forever. If the Lord takes me home, you will have a new pastor. But you are the church. You. And to sit idly as a believer and just come and feed every Sunday is not God's design for you. That's not the church. And what I've heard so far is that you stepped up and became the church. Our elders, Vic Grable, Greg Dolby, Tony Cardinal, and Phil Seniors, they stepped up and they dealt with the load of my plate. And I thank you guys. Can we give them a round of applause? My staff held their chins up high. I want to thank Michael and Elliot for teaching and and leading the teaching team. And Elliot, poor Elliot, he came in on board October, and then the lead pastor says, hey, I'm out of here. (laughs) Thank you, Elliot, for carrying the team. Thank you, Elliot. Yeah. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open them up to Isaiah 40. I am not the message, by the way, so I'll go quick. Thank you, God. Isaiah 40. Those of you who know this are starting to grin because you know what's coming. We're going to go from verse 28 to verse 31. It's probably not going to be on the screen, and I think that's a good thing. If you're watching online, 
I love you. Um, go ahead and get your Bible and uh, turn to Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you elevation not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. Your God does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. If you're in a season where you say, I'm faint, would you just raise your hand? Yeah, you're faint. The Bible, the inspired word of God, says he gives power to the faint. It doesn't say he gives power to the strong. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The wilderness is all about building strength, power, and health as we trust in the Lord. So what I want to do for you today, since all of you have been praying for me, I know that. Thank you for your cards. Thank you for your thoughts. If you were texting me, I'm sorry my phone was off for eight weeks. I needed to detox. But thank you for your prayers and your faith, standing in the gap for me and Lauren and so what I want to do is I want Lauren to come up and I want us to pray for you. Return the favor of what you've done. Come here, beautiful. So would you just bow your heads? And if you're ready to receive from the Lord, feel free to even just put your hands in front of you as a gesture that you are in need of God to show up in your life. Jesus, you created the world. Before the foundations of the world, you were also slain on the cross for our sin. You are in all things. And by you, you created all things. And in you, Colossians says, you hold all things together. You know every single person sitting in these brown seats in this auditorium you know the thoughts before they even speak them. You know their needs before they even become a need. You know the loss that they're experiencing. You know the challenges and the trials that they are enduring. You know the lies and the fear that are attacking them by day and by night. But Father, we have this hope that in Jesus and through his resurrection, we have power 
for today, for tomorrow, and death is not the end. It is just the beginning with you. And so I pray for a supernatural power to come upon every single person that is in the wilderness, that your eyes would be lifted to the great high shepherd, and that when you are weak and when you are faint and when you feel like giving up, and friends, during this time away, I wanted to give up. But Jesus never let me. And he said, you keep your eyes on me. Not the winds, not the waves, not the opinions and the approval of men. Not to please others and be everything to everyone. But to be obedient and devoted to my King Jesus. I pray that for every single person here. Jesus, we love you so much. And everyone here at church, I just want you to know how much we love you. Like we really love you. Thank you for walking with us through all of this. And Jesus, I know that uh, all that we've gone through is so light and so temporary compared to what so many here have gone through. And I'm sorry for your sorrows. And uh, thankful for redemption. Thank you, Jesus, for this journey. Not just between our family, but with this church family. And Jesus, I pray you would sit next to every single person in here walk in and out of these halls, walk through this church, through this building, Lord. God, with our kids and our teens and our staff and families here, that you would meet them exactly where they are. You are the only deity who has walked a road of pain and sorrow who understands the only one who came down to be with us instead of requiring us to do anything to please you and for that we are grateful you are almighty God and you are gracious and loving Father I pray your Holy Spirit would bring comfort to those who need it, strength to those who need it, love to those who need it. I pray for a fresh anointing, a fresh spirit as you um, do a new thing here, that it would not just be... Um, 
a new thing for a few, but a new thing as a community of believers. We thank you so much for this church, for these people, for your power, for your forgiveness, for your healing. God, be honored and glorified in all that we do. Keep our eyes focused on you, our one true thing. Amen. Amen. For those of you who don't know me, who've been here <laughs> since I've been away, can you raise your hand if you've been visiting since I've been away? Awesome. Welcome. I'd love to meet you. Can't wait. Now, can we just give a warm welcome to one of our elders, and uh, in, my, in my mind, when you go to the dictionary and you look up the word stud, <laughs> you see Greg Dolby's name there. <laughs> and uh, I'm just so thankful for him to bring the word today. Can you give it up for him? He... He promised me he was not going to preach. <laughs> Good morning, church. What a blessing, Phil, to have you back. It's been, uh, it's been really hard, really, as I think as church leaders during this time, to um, respect his need and his desire for privacy. We wanted to reach out to him many times. We have a few, but by and large, it's been a time for him to spend time with the Lord and with his doctors and to uh, reach a place where he feels he can come back in full strength. And I like what I hear. How about you? That's going to happen. Thank you, Phil, very much. Uh, and thank you for the fact that I now have to abbreviate my message because <laughs> the clock is ticking, brother. Uh, before, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15 this morning. I do not have a PowerPoint. I, I want you to use your imagination today more and to think with me and to visualize some of what Luke 15 says versus read it on a screen. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke 15. If you have your phone app, which most of us do, turn there. But before I go there, there are two things that have happened in recent days that I think we need as a church to recognize. And I don't know that we've done it appropriately, haven't done it enough, and I want to do that. First of all, I want to read a verse of scripture from Psalm 139. It says, oh yes, you shake me first inside, then out. You form me in my mother's room. I thank you, high God. You are breathtaking. This is from the message translation. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. The days of my life are all prepared before I even lived one day. On June 24th this year, do we know what happened? Yeah, Our Supreme Court came to its senses and uh, decided to change a law that had been in place for 49 years. Prior to that law, um, 
being changed. There was a survey done around the country back in February through Barna. And people were asked, do you have an idea how many lives were, were given up by legal abortion since Roe v. Wade? How many? The average number, I don't know how many were in that survey, the average number turned out to be just a little under 20 million. The average guess by people surveyed. The real number is 64 million. Now that would only account for legal abortion. It's hard to say what the total would be. You know, that's the population of Texas and California combined. Imagine that. Two states, two of our largest states, 66 million people. Six times the size of the state of Ohio. Church, we have a responsibility, I think, to not only celebrate that, but I think there's another responsibility, if we're not careful, we'll miss. And that is the responsibility of the church to recognize that the challenge that faces women with an undesired pregnancy, what will they do? This is the church's opportunity to come alive, to be responsive, to do everything in our power to minister to those women. Well, let's not miss that, okay? We can't just celebrate the change because, frankly, that change has spawned a lot of activity state by state. Am I not right? And, and you know, who knows where Ohio will end up on that law? But it, in a sense, it's confused the situation because one state or another will have a different law of its own. Let's continue to pray about that. What can we do as a church? Let's don't forget that. I wanted to mention that today because I don't think enough has been said about it. Number two, about a week ago, we had this horrific uh, tornado in Goshen. I don't know if you had a chance to, and, and to drive any of the roads in Goshen, but there's still some people struggling. And this church has done some things. Thank you very much for those of you who stepped up. We opened the church uh, for a time for, for serving meals and things like that. But let's continue to do that. Let's be the church in our community in Goshen, whether it's people in this church or people that are there, I spoke to a friend of mine who actually pastors a church at the school there, uh, Aaron Ellerman, uh, this week, and he was saying how people in his church were out every day for seven days, 12 hours a day with their chainsaws. That's all they did. And I said, Aaron, that's great. He goes, well, you know what? There's no better ministry than being in your community doing what has to be done. Let's continue to do that. Would you pray for Goshen and the people there who are still suffering. Let's continue to do that. Thank you for enduring those two things, okay? That was important. Luke chapter 15. Let's look at this this morning. We are in a discipleship series, and in this series, we are trying to paint a picture as clearly as we can of where we believe as the leaders of this church we want to go as a, can I dare say it, call a movement here at Elevation? And that's a movement towards discipleship. That word could be misunderstood a little bit, I guess. But we're focusing our efforts on correctly understanding and implementing the Great Commission there in Matthew 28. You know, Jesus was pretty simple in his instructions to his followers. And to those who followed him closely, he was really clear about what he expected them to do. And I don't think you could make an argument that that has changed. 
It's not changed. This is the responsibility of the church today, what the Great Commission gave us to do. Our focus then has been on understanding what, what Jesus meant by that. And last week, Elliot talked about the importance of living with this intentional missional lifestyle, very intentional missional lifestyle, how to make and multiply disciples. And probably most important in that, the difference between knowledge and obedience. You know, you can read things and in a sense skim them and never really apply them. We want to be a, a church that obeys. Let's be the obedient church. He talked about the attractional model of the church versus the missional model. And frankly, in that missional model, I'm not going to repeat all that, there's a very important element that I think we want to focus on, and that is in the missional church, our job, if I can call it a job, <laughs> is to equip the believer to go and tell. You know, there's this idea in the church, maybe in North America primarily, that says, come here, learn here, stay here, grow here, just be here, and be satisfied with that. That's not the plan Jesus gave us. His plan wasn't to attract and retain. His plan was to come and learn and grow and go, and go and tell. And I'm not just talking about full-time paid missionaries. I'm talking about every one of us. Our life should have a measure of going and giving and telling and sharing. Now, that leads us into Luke chapter 15 today because, frankly, it's not likely you're going to do that very well in your own strength, me, me included. To go and make disciples and to have that kind of impact, to do that in your own strength, I'm going to tell you right now that you're going to fail. There is a need for two things. Number one would be a passion like Jesus has. You have to have the same passion that Jesus has for the lost, or that will not work. And I think this is something the church has, to some degree, failed to recognize. Our passion for the same thing that Jesus is passionate about. And then, secondly, that must be fueled by a Holy Spirit awakening. Because without that, it'll just become knowledge. Okay. Now, I could ask you, in fact, husbands, I'm going to give you a break and let you think about this because you're a little slower than wives here. Okay. Wives, tell me, give me an idea, give me a subject about which if your husband was given the opportunity in the group, he would be more than happy to share his opinion and his knowledge. It's a subject that he is passionate about. Ladies, give me an example of that. Motorcycle. Motorcycles. Motorcycles. Football. Football. What? Army. Gardening. Wow, oh, gotcha, okay. Over here? Did I hear one? Have one over here? Guitars. Now, why do you think your husband is able to do that? Kathy, I'm going to call you out for just a second. How, how come he can do that? Because he, he loves it. He's learned about it. And he finds himself associating with other guys to do it too, right? So he surrounds himself by that subject, and he learns about it. I bet he works on his own motorcycle. Guitars, all that. That's what I'm talking about, my friends. A passion for what Jesus is passionate about, where you don't have to consciously remind yourself all the time to share who Jesus is. It's just who you are. And given any opportunity, you're going to do it because you're passionate about it. Okay, guys, I gave you enough time. Your wives, what would that subject be for her? Typical guy response. <laughs> I give you time to plan for it, and I get nothing. 
No, here's the thing. Guys don't want to be wrong because they'll pay for it later. What'd you say? Cooking. Cooking. All right. We're going to leave it at that because I don't want to embarrass more guys. You get the point. The point is that when we are when we are uh, educated about something and we've learned about it and we've poured ourselves into it and we've invested effort into it, we want to share it. By the way, that's why you're here today. I've said this before and I'm going to say it again at the end. This church should never, ever, ever be viewed as a sanctuary from the world. It should be viewed as a training ground to transform the world. That is why we're here. And when we sit here and we take it in and we don't give it out, we're failing in that respect. Luke chapter 15 is a parable. Actually, you know, Jesus told about 40 parables. But there are three in this chapter. Turn with me to that. A par- what is a parable? It's, simple. it's a simple way of telling a story that illustrates a moral or spiritual truth. You do, we do it with children without realizing it at times. The focus of these parables we're looking at today really is on understanding how Jesus is passionate about the lost and how that should be the way we see the world. I'm going to abbreviate this in the interest of time today since somebody stole a little bit of my time, but that's okay, Pastor. I'll I'll get even with you sometime later, okay? Let me set the stage for Luke 15. Luke chapter 14, Jesus is being followed by what are often referred to in Scripture as tax collectors and sinners. And I think, I, I think that's kind of funny. It almost says like tax collectors are a special kind of sinner because they're not even in the sinners. They're tax collectors and sinners, right? They're kind of equal, but they're calling out, why would that be? What, did anybody know the tax collector? Why did they have such a bad reputation? Well, they were thieves, essentially. They were doing you could argue necessary work in a sense, but they were also thieves, and they were highly regarded as bad guys because tax collectors were robbing their own people. They had a special place, a special, let's say, uh, award as sinners. Then there were regular sinners. But anyway, in Luke 14, it, it paints this picture of Jesus being followed by the tax collectors and the sinners. And you could easily overlook that as, as an unimportant part of, of the story, but it's not because Jesus at one point in Luke 14 as he sees them continuing to press in and follow him, he makes some really interesting statements to them in this sense. I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. He basically says, you know what? I like the fact that you follow me, but let me challenge you for a minute to count the cost of discipleship. I'm not impressed by the fact that you just follow me around and watch me do miracles. The reality is, if you want to be my disciple... You're going to have to do some very difficult things. And the scripture even goes as far as to say, hate your mother and father. And I don't think it literally means that. It simply means to not hold them in higher regard than you would hold following Jesus. Abandon everything you have. He uses two illustrations in there, too, about ways in which you, you essentially have to empty yourself of all that you've considered valuable. You want to follow me? Then that's what it's going to take. That's what he says in Luke chapter 14. And yet they still follow him, which I think is intriguing because all those tax collectors and sinners still see something in Jesus that attracts them. They still see it, and they follow him everywhere. Now, that brings us into Luke 15. There are three parables we're only going to focus on two today. The first parable, which some uh, would say is the first parable that Jesus shared, 
Try to get a mental picture of this first. In the first, I'm going to read the first seven verses here. Follow along. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You hear the whining going on there? Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on the shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice, I have found my lost sheep. This is the message now to the audience. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now here's the audience. On the one hand, you got the Pharisees, which arguably is who he's talking to. The Pharisees. When you see the Pharisees in Scripture, what are they typically doing? Challenging, discrediting, trapping, accusing, everything they can to Jesus, right? Their whole goal is to, is to, is to look at Jesus as a problem, essentially. So the Pharisees are hearing this. The tax collectors and sinners are also hearing it off to the side. I think their, their ears are different, though. The tax collectors and sinners are probably struck by the overwhelming example of the love of Jesus over one lost sheep. The Pharisees, on the other hand, you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, those people over there, those tax collectors and sinners, they don't deserve to hear this message. In fact, many rabbis in this day would never share truth with the unclean, because the unclean were not worthy of that. If you can imagine that, they would, they would intentionally not share anything about the law or about religion in general, because they were unclean. They were not worthy, not worthy in their mind. In fact, the reality here is that as Jesus speaks to this group, he is essentially saying to them, all are worthy. And I, Jesus, I don't divide humanity into two classes. Those that are the one sheep over here, the 99 over there. The 99 kind of characterizes the Pharisees. The one is is the lost one. So when he finds this lost sheep, this is the, the shepherd down in verse 4. First of all, in, in the reality is you might say, well, why would he leave 99 to go find one? Well, more, more than likely there was more than one shepherd because it would have been a common practice with a herd of 100 to have two or three. So this is, we're probably talking about the head shepherd. I'll call him the boss shepherd, okay? He's leaving his lieutenants behind with a 99. He's going after the one that he's lost, that wandered away. Now, I don't know what you know about sheep. I like the, the Clark commentary. He says, no creature stays, strays more easily than the sheep. None is more heedless, none so incapable of finding its way back when gone. It will bleat for the flock and still run the opposite direction. <laughs> that kind of characterizes us as when we're before we know the Lord, doesn't it? Or even when we do know the Lord, running the other direction. But the shepherd, what does he do? This is a picture here of Jesus, a parable. He will search until he finds it. The sheep won't save itself. It can't do that. And the reality is that in most cases, it's God who finds the sinner, not the sinner who finds God. Because the way Jesus pursues us is never-ending. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't give up on you? <laughs> because there was a point where 
it would have been in a human sense very easy to say, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of pursuing you. I'm tired of revealing myself to you. I'm done with you. Jesus never does that. He pursues the one. And what's he do? He says he puts them on his shoulder. Not only does he find the lost sheep, he carries that lost sheep. He relieves it of its burden. He welcomes it in. I imagine the sheep felt a certain comfort on the shoulders of a shepherd, unlike being maybe dragged along the ground by a rope. <laughs> um, here's the important message that, that, that boils down to, though, is it talks in that scripture there about the rejoicing in heaven. The emphasis there being that there was joy in heaven when one sinner is lost. One sinner, one sheep. Let me ask you a question here. Try to apply this to the church today. Not only our church, but the church in general. Are we, are we just content with who is here? It's easy to, to, to be content with just who is here. You're the 99, let's say for a second, for illustration. Are we content with who is here? And like the Pharisees, ooh, I, this hurts, I'm sorry, but are we judgmental about the tax collectors and sinners who we think are not deserving of being here. Church, this, this, this parable is, is a call to action which simply says our spiritual radar needs to be constantly on and looking for the lost. Jesus was absolutely, is absolutely aware, much like the shepherd. Now, let me paraphrase that, backing up a second. If I was the shepherd and had 100 sheep, 99 sheep, and I lost one, I'm not sure I would notice it, right? Because they're, they're scattered around, and how would I know one left? Well, because I know every single one of them. And this is where but Jesus knows every single one, too. By, by, by the very nature of our creation, we are part of the family of God in the sense of our origin. We may not have come to God in a salvation experience, but we're still part of the family. And he still claims us, saved or not. And so we have to have the same concern for people that Jesus had. I want to share with you an illustration that is the best in my life I've ever experienced this. I'm going to keep this brief, but it's such a powerful illustration. Um, a few years ago, I met a guy whose name is Gary Skinner. Gary's a pastor, missionary kid, born in Zimbabwe, ministered throughout Africa in Canada. He's Canadian by... by uh, by nationality, uh, citizenship, met him at a conference, and he was talking about, um, he was actually there raising money for what's called uh, the Watoto Ministry. Watoto Ministry is a ministry that also includes the African Children's Choir. Ever heard the African Children's Choir? They just blow you away. They're amazing. If you've never heard them on tour, go see the African Children's Choir you can read about them at watoto.com, I'm pretty sure. But anyway, uh, met Gary. He was talking about the um, ministry of his church in Uganda, where he was pastoring. And the ministry was focused on uh, helping the government address corruption. Uganda has been viewed as the second or third most corrupt nation in the world for a long time. Uh, that intrigued my business partner and I at the time, Ron Jensen, and... and um, about a month later, um, he invited us to come and work with the parliament of his country because they were working on a corruption strategy and they had a need for some 
leadership, they called it leadership development. Basically, try to reorient the thinking of the leaders of that country more towards transforming their mind. Uh, and, but because we had a process for doing that that was pre-evangelistic, which means it wasn't overtly biblical, it was more relational, and the Bible became something you introduced in the course of that, we could, we, we could basically have the opportunity to work with that government. That's the background story. But the reality is, when we arrived in Kampala, if you've never been to Uganda, the capital is Kampala, and in the middle of Kampala, the central church there is the Kampala Pentecostal Church, and let me tell you, you've never worshipped anywhere in your life like in the, in the Pentecostal Church in Africa. First of all, preaching is totally anticlimactic. Totally. And uh, Gary, here's this white guy, Gary Skinner, Canadian. He's got this congregation. To shorten the story, he said to us when Ron and I got there, he said, you know, guys, uh, my, my, my people love to hear guest speakers. Would you be willing to preach? And so I remember Ron saying, sure, Which, what, uh, what time? And he said, well, you can kind of pick your time. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about, Gary? He goes, well... He said, you know, we typically have five, six services on Sunday. And I remember saying, typically? You mean it's not? He goes, no, no, it's not organized. I said, Gary, tell us how this works. Let me, let, me, let me explain what he said to us. He goes, all right, here's how it works. Well, I wish this was so true of our church, Phil. 7 o'clock, 7.30 on Sunday morning, out that door right over there, he says, people will start lining up. And about 8 o'clock, we will open the door and let the first 300 people in. He says, there will be another two or 300 out there that didn't get in line in time. But the first 300 will come in, and we will have a service. When that service is done, we will escort them out that door and let the next 300 people in. He said, on an average Sunday, that'll go five or six services, and we'll have dinner and go home. Now, talk about being exhausted as a pastor, right? So the picture in my mind was this hunger and thirst to come to this church and to, and to come in. But there's more to that story. And, and I remember how he described it to us. Anyway, Ron, Ron asked the question. He goes, so how much time do we have to speak? Ron's a very kind of structured guy, likes planning. How much time do I have to speak? And here's what Gary said. He goes, oh, you'll know. And I remember Ron saying, well, what's that mean? He goes, no, you'll know. Here's how it worked, Ron. Here's how Gary explained it. About 10 minutes after you start to speak, he said, <clears throat> people will start to stand up. And that's a statement uh, or an expression of their way of honoring the fact that you were giving them a message that they, they can use in, in, in their life. And when, when, when they are sure they've heard everything you needed to say, as far as they're concerned, they will sit down and you're done. And I remember Ron saying, wait a minute, what if I'm not done? And Gary said, no, you're done. You're done. Because the rhythm of that worship service was that people came to learn something simple that would, that would help them in their Christian walk and in their ministry to other people. And when they got it, their enthusiasm to go and use it created this desire to get out of church. I can't sit here another minute. And this was the... I called it parade initially, every Sunday morning. That church has 20,000 cell groups in Uganda. A cell group being a community, home church, small group, whatever, in someone's home. And you know, almost every single one of those people at some point have attended that church to get some training to go and have that impact. 
Gary said, here's my biggest problem in this church. I can't get people to stay here long enough to serve in this church. <laughs> because they came to learn and apply, to come and learn and go. And the stories of that church, if you ever get a chance to read any of them, are incredible. Well, I, I got to preach in the 9 o'clock service, and I got to about, I got about 80% of my sermon, and they all sat down. And I looked at Ron, he goes, So I stopped. But to me, what happened there is that that group, and I said I was going to repeat this, those people understood that that church is not a sanctuary from the world. It is a training ground to transform the world. And many times, he would say thousands of times, he has had people come through there, get that training. They called it training. We call it a sermon, and you're just sitting there listening. He called it training. They get the training, they go, they practice that in their community, they come back the next week or two and get some more. He said, there have been many, many times, maybe thousands, I've never seen those people again. Why? I said, did you lose them? Oh, no, I didn't lose them. What happened is they got enough in their mind and God used it in such a way that they could build a community and then, then what did they do? Then they split that community. And people from their community started another community, and then they would come to church to get more training. You see the multiplication factor in that? It's amazing. Amazing that a church can do that. The church in America can do this. But it takes the heart of Jesus. You, you can't walk out here today and go, well, that's a great idea. I think I'll do that. No, I don't think so. The heart of Jesus, as illustrated in this lost sheep, Jesus was telling us, I'm concerned about one lost soul, and so should we be, and I'll do whatever it takes to hunt it down. I will find that one lost sheep. There are lots of lost sheep out there in Blanchester. We aren't that far away. How much desire do we have to reach them? Can we be a church like that? I think on some scale we can. We absolutely can. I have seven minutes left. I, I asked him for the countdown clock today. You ever notice that back there? Is that clock back there? If you ever want to know whether, whether you have time for a nap, just look at that clock right there. I hope you understand the illustration of that church. I'm not trying to embarrass us or even criticize. I'm saying I, I remember that model so vividly because I, I realized that, and I know this is pastor's heart. I can say this confidently. We're not about bringing you in so we can keep you here. We're bringing you in. We want you to be here up to the point where you feel equipped to have an impact in the world around you. That's your calling. You're welcome here anytime, but I'd rather have you be out there making a difference in the world, whatever your community is, whatever, wherever your world goes. You know people I don't know, and I know people you don't know, and that's, that's what ministry is all about, right? Second parable. We'll wrap it up with this. The second parable there is in verses 8 through 10. This is the parable of the lost coin. Now, if the, if the shepherd was worried about losing one out of 99, then it makes sense that the woman's worried about losing one coin out of 10. So it's not about the ratio, okay? The reality is here, and I love this story too, but you can miss a few things if you're not reading this completely here. It says, or what woman having 10 coins, silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I love how Jesus always brings that right to the point. 
I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And once again, we see this passion for lost souls. This one coin. Now, it was a common practice in this day when this parable was told for a married woman to wear a, we would call it a necklace, it was more of a head chain with coins on it, and that would be a, a, um, a way of messaging that she's married. That was just a common cultural practice. And so it was a very treasured thing. I mean, you don't want to, you, you want to wear that to show that you're a married woman, but you, if you lose something, you want to find it. So it was important to her, and it was a precious ornament. Um, I saw some ornaments like this at a, um, a conference I was at in Arizona a few years ago where Steve Green, who is the son of the founder of Hobby Lobby, was, was there with a traveling um, example of the artifacts that the Green family has collected, which are now in the Museum of the Bible. Have you ever heard of the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C.? It's a 400,000 square foot building filled with biblical artifacts. You should go there if you're in Washington, because you walk through there, one thing you're going to come away saying, wow, I guess the Bible really did happen, right? This history really is true. It's right here. It's tangible. And these are elements of what took, what took place at the time. And I remember seeing some artifacts that kind of look like what we're talking about here. Evidence, um, this collection of evidence that what the Bible says is actually true. There's physical evidence of the times in which Jesus lived. And I would say visit that if you can. What, what happens here in this parable? What's, what's the point of what God is saying here? Um, well, first of all, just because she lost the coin doesn't mean it's not hers anymore. It's still hers. Someone else didn't claim it. It's still her coin. Much like the lost are still Jesus. They still need to be found. The lost coin is still hers. And how does she approach this? It says... She lit a lamp. That would be the gospel as the church. She swept the house, get our house in order, and she searched carefully. You see the parallel in that? She lit a lamp. She swept the house, and she searched carefully. This is what the church should be doing. The lamp. What's the lamp? The word of God. The message. The gospel. We need to shine that light. We need to clean our house, prepare our house, and we need to search carefully, diligently seeking the lost with the same passion that Jesus had that he's illustrating here. This is how the church, really led by the Holy Spirit, will search for souls. The light of God's word, sweeping clean our own place and then searching for the lost. Um... I'm going to have the band come on up if, they're, if they can hear me. I'm skipping forward to some action items here. I have a couple of action items. Maybe three that I'd like you to think about this week. Okay. We have been intentionally uh, working through this teaching series on discipleship because of what we have planned for this church in the fall. And without necessarily focusing on what the structure looks like, I do want to say... We very, very much want every single person here to consider being part of what we're calling real-life groups in the fall. This is the starting point of this discipleship focus. Becoming involved in a group, we'll call it real-life group for now, is a way for you to learn 
what the scripture has to say about what it means to live in love like Jesus. Do that for your benefit first, okay? Unless you know everything there is to know, which I don't think you do, because I don't. I'm sure you don't know everything either. Take advantage of the fellowship and learning that you can accomplish together in a small group, okay, in the fall. More to come on that. Number two, ask God to use you in that group to minister to other people. I think you'll be surprised, pleasantly surprised by how much impact you can have within that group. Those groups will be led by people who I believe are gifted to do that. But your participation in a group could be one of the most meaningful things you'll ever experience in church life. Would you consider that? Be in a group for your own benefit. Ask God to use you in that group to minister to others. And perhaps even at some point, ask yourself, am I willing to be a leader? I love the fact we sang that song again today about God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. That's so true. Um, have the courage to be submiss- submit your life to God and say, Lord, use me however you want to. I'm going to join a group. I'm going to learn what I can. I'm going to, be as, I'm going to make the, as much of a contribution as possible. And Lord, ultimately, may you... Uh, find a place for me in your kingdom to live out this idea that this place should not be viewed as a sanctuary from the world. It should be viewed as a training ground to transform the world. Can we think that way? I believe it. I believe we need to do that. So um, let me pray for us as we think about how we can apply it this week. Lord, Lord, you have blessed us with your word in so many ways. You give us such simple illustrations of your heart. Lord, your heart just aches for people, for the lost. And Lord, you've commissioned us through your word and through the conviction in our own minds as we think about your word to be involved, Lord, very deeply in this idea of our role in ministry in our community, Lord. Lord, equip us, empower us, and lead us, I pray today. May we be just full of enthusiasm about taking what we learn together as we worship together corporately. Instead of just putting that in our back pocket and moving on, Lord, giving it back to you and asking, Lord, how would you have me take what I am learning about you and share it with other people? Equip us, Lord. Challenge us. Lord, we, we, are, we have expectant minds when it comes to what you can accomplish through our obedience. So, Lord, help us. Lead us into obedience, I pray, Lord, today. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to our weekly sermon. If you'd like to go deeper with another resource from our church, please check out our weekly Impact Bible Study podcast as well. Both of our podcasts are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud.